Hi everyone. Welcome to season two of Belongings. I'm so grateful and happy that you're joining us for another season of conversations with inspiring, creative people as we discuss home, belonging, identity, and more. I've learned so much from our guests this season, and I hope you will also find these conversations as rich and meaningful as I did. Thank you again for supporting the podcast, for being here with us, and for supporting Kadem Foundation. I really appreciate you being here, and I really hope you enjoy this season. Welcome again to Belongings. Hi, Abir. Welcome to Belongings. Hi, Lina. So nice to see you again. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited for this conversation today. Me too, actually. We haven't spoken in quite a while, huh? I know, I know. So everybody, today, I'm very excited to speak with my friend, my dear friend, Abir Sayeli, who is uh, somebody who I've known now, I was thinking about it the other day, 25 years. Wow, that's right. Which is... I think it it was like my seven. Yeah, it feels like it has been a lifetime of knowing you, but also feels like time has been so short. And I always talk about Abir as somebody, one of my very precious relationships that I made when I was at architecture school at RISD, which we will talk about a lot today, Mm -hmm. hopefully, and the work Mm -hmm. and the development of Abir's amazing work. So I'm very excited to speak with you today. Thank you, Habibti. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I just want to actually, maybe just uh, since you've made an introduction about me, maybe I'll make an introduction about you, but... I think that uh, more than a friend, you've uh, Lina, whom I've known since RISD, has played such an instrumental role in helping me shape my ideas. And one of the things that I really value is that Lina really helped me a lot with kind of materializing my ideas into words. And I think that's one of the most powerful traits or one of the most powerful things that you kind of hold is your power to be able to write so beautifully, Lina. So that really helped me, I have to say. Thank you. And when I look at your work now and how you express it in your own writing, I can see how strong that is. And it actually matches the quality of your work that you're making. So that makes me so happy. So I want to start by reading a short bio. I tried to shorten it as much as I could for Abir because she is extremely accomplished. She's done so many things in her career. And it makes me so proud to go over this bio and then we can get into the conversation. Abir Saikhari is a Jordanian-Palestinian interdisciplinary thinker and maker who works across architecture, design, fine art, and cultural production. Her practice is grounded in acts of memory, journaling, documenting, archiving, and collecting. She weaves her narrative threads from these memories. Abir draws inspiration from traditional knowledge in the Arab homeland and the changing global landscape. She views her practice as a social technology for cultural empowerment. Her recent works center indigenous Bedouin practices to recover the intimacy of handmaking. She travels to Jordan's Badia, the desert, where she engages in Bedouin women's craftsmanship of textile weaving. She's won many awards. In 2013, she won the first Lexus Design Award for her ongoing work, Weaving a Home. She's co-founded and co-directed Amman Design Week. She's also established Al Mamar, a cultural experience and residency program in Amman. 
In 2021, she was awarded an endowed professorship as a Louis Kahn Visiting Assistant Professor at the Yale School of Architecture, and she has been chosen as a lead participant in the Sharjah Architectural Triennial 2023. Her work has been exhibited really all around the world, in the Science Museum of London, Darat al-Fanun al-Amman, the Miyaki Isi Foundation in Tokyo, and many others. Her works are in private and public collections. She's a frequent speaker, panelist, and lecturer. So welcome again, Abir, and we'll get into the conversation. Thank you, Zina. What an amazing bio, and it makes me so happy to read it. I want to start by talking about really the intersection of this podcast and what we try to explore in this podcast and your work to get really into the heart of it, because it is something that you also explore a lot in your work. What does belonging mean to you? I think belonging is a mental state. First of all, I would like to say that I feel as I reflect upon the past and I look at how I've evolved and how I've evolved in various places that I've lived in around the world, I see that there's definitely kind of like a progression. And what I mean is that a place that I didn't want to live in at one point in my life now, I completely embrace. And the reason is, is because I become more aware of myself and of my environment, but mostly of how I'm positioning myself within that environment and how I'm kind of conducting my daily tasks, but also simultaneously connecting to a kind of a broader community. And uh, for me, that is really what belonging is to me. It's to, you know, to be aware of yourself, to be sensitive to your environment, to understand what, I wouldn't say what makes you happy, because happiness is a very broad word, right? I think we move through life and goes through different emotions. And I think that the the key for me in, in feeling a sense of belonging is to connect with myself constantly, but also to connect with other members of my community. Yeah, that's incredible. We will definitely get into this idea of finding your belonging, which I've witnessed from afar and really digging in deeper and deeper into really the roots of what it is to be Jordanian, which is something that I feel like you've really adapted to that and actually really like it seeped into your being. So we'll get into that in terms of how you're working through that, because I think you really embody that sense of belonging very literally within the things that you're making with the community. Mm-hmm. So my second piece is something we do with all of our podcast guests. And it's something Mm -hmm. that you'll probably recognize, which is called the Mapping Mm -hmm. Memory Project. And Mm -hmm. it's something that, as you know, I've been doing this for many, many years with people over the years, and we've adapted it to this podcast. And we find it very interesting to ask our guests to draw what home is to them. And of course, you're an architect. Traditionally, this project started by making floor plans, but it evolved into Mm -hmm. people really drawing home in any way that they imagine it. So it could take a form Mm -hmm. of a plan or an image or even a symbol. So Mm -hmm. the meaning of home can be as flexible, like it could be in the past, the future, the present, in however way you want. But we'd love for you to draw us a map of home and then tell us the story of that map. Shall I begin? Yeah, you can begin. Sometimes people speak while they're drawing. Otherwise, I'll give you a few minutes to do that. No, actually, I can speak. It would be nice. Well, my home is definitely a plan. If I'm going to kind of like transcribe the, the, the kind of 
the interpretation of, of whole. And that's because I think that one of the most significant uh, memories I have is building my family building the home that I, you know, have been living in. And I was five years old and the architect that designed this home uh, built a model that was in our living room. And, you know, I, I just was always like fascinated, like, what is this weird looking object? And, and when my dad told me it was a home, I witnessed its construction, you know, throughout the next two years. And seeing that little model become something that actually encloses me, right? So all of a sudden I'm in this thing that I've imagined you know, while seeing it being built, I think had such a great impact on me. But also uh, the home that I'm drawing has a very uh, distinct feature and it's a courtyard. And I think that that courtyard is or was and is, still is a very important gathering space. It's a social space. And there's also another interesting feature within the courtyard, which is a stair, a floating stair that takes you up to the roof. And that's a, like a very visible feature within the courtyard. So that's really, um, that's really home for me. That's beautiful. And actually, one thing I'd also like to mention is, you know, when you live in a home, you don't just live within a space. Your environment is constantly being transformed, right? And so your relationship to uh, how you live within your home also evolves. So, for example, our home, when we first built it, was the only uh, house in that area. And the design of the house has a huge glass curtain, uh, you know, which references kind of the traditional Arab mashtrabiya. And it's over, but it overlooked like an entire kind of like, I would say, you know, there was a horizon in front of you. There was a mountain in front of you. But then throughout the years, this whole area became urbanized. And so the way we started dealing with kind of openness, privacy. And I think why this courtyard is important is because it allowed us to remain very flexible within our living space while at the same time being outside. So it's an outside that's also inside. And that I really love as an idea. That's really significant. I mean, it's strange that you talk about this. I was just thinking about this the other day about how when I was going to Aleppo in the 80s and the area that we ended up living in was an area that was almost completely unbuilt. And I was just thinking about this idea of when you go back to a place, if I would ever be able to go back to Aleppo, that how you would experience the same place that you grew up in, but it potentially looking completely different for different reasons, obviously. Mm -hmm. But that idea mm -hmm. that how like space changes completely and changes your relationship to where you're living in. That's for sure. I think that, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but also, you know, growing up in my grandmother's garden, playing with my cousins and, and this garden seemed so vast and big. And uh, when I revisited that garden again, I was kind of disappointed in a way because it felt so small. And in a very strange way, it kind of overtook that initial memory I had of it. Right. So yeah. while I had memories of this garden as being this essentially a maze, you know, became this very kind of like shabby, worn out place that felt small and that stayed with me as well. So, yeah, our perceptions of things and of places are constantly evolving. 
And that's a good thing. That happened to me exactly with my grandmother's building, which I thought was so tall. She was on the third floor and then visiting it in 2011, it was crushing because it felt like such a small building and, and not a tall building at all. And in my memory, it was so, so tall and big. And mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Like your perception completely shifted. Yeah, absolutely. Are you waiting for me to finish the drawing, by the way? Yeah, I want to see the drawing yeah. if you can show it. Wonderful. Yes. I see the courtyard and the stairs. That's awesome. I need to refine it. I mean, for, I mean, for everybody listening, you know, this was going to be my next question, but you really talked about it now mm -hmm. in the memory map is that your TED talk really mm -hmm. covered this really the expansiveness of the story of your memory of home and the model and the building of the home. So I encourage everybody listening to listen to Abir's TEDx talk. It's incredible. And it tells really the story of home. So I want to ask for you next, as we mentioned a little bit about you becoming more and more part of the community in Jordan and spending a lot more time in the Badia, the Jordanian desert, and with the Bedouin community. So I wanted to ask you about how did you actually decide to start learning from the community, the indigenous community in Jordan? And what have you learned from spending so much time with these communities? I think that my work with those communities was something very gradual. And it kind of started with research, right? So my first work, which I feel opened the way to my connection with the Bedouins, was a tapestry that was uh, hand-knitted. And the design was inspired by a rug that my great-grandmother wove. And I think that was the beginning of me starting to ask questions, right? So, because my practice is basically led by asking those questions. And those questions are, in a way, manifest into these projects. And I think, in, you know, in, in design and architecture and life in general, I think asking questions is a very important tool for creative thinking, for moving forward. So it was graduate. So it started with kind of research and, and trying to express this connection in a different way. But, you know, when I first started, I wasn't communicating with anybody once. It was all about reading or listening to stories that my family told me and looking at the artifacts that I inherited, you know, from the family. And then slowly as my work evolved and I think the next stage for me was the tent that I designed, which was inspired by the Bedouin tent. And um, that was a very interesting exploration because while I did reference and was inspired by not only the Bedouin tent, I mean, in terms of its representation, in terms of its symbolism, in terms of its circularity and in its meaning and the meaning it had in terms of like, what is a home? for the Bedouin communities and, and, and something that kind of offered a new way of thinking about home, right? So with Weaving a Home, I think that's such a significant project. And Lina, you really helped me with that. And I think that home is continuously being woven. And at each stage in my work, I discover something new. And when I continued my research and my development of the tent, I realized that you know, home and shelter is not a product, but it's a social and a cultural process that needs to be developed with a community. And this is where I slowly started, you know, 
going back to my origins, I would say again, I think that one of the things that got me kickstarted with connecting to my community is my realization that we in Jordan had an abundant resource and that was wool. And this is something that completely fascinated me is we have all of this wool, but why aren't we utilizing it? It's an kind of neglected resource. And when I started researching that, this is when I started connecting to the shepherds, to the Bedouins and to different members of the community and started really understanding the nuances behind this materiality, how it was used, how it was produced. So going through the entire system of production, right? And I think that this is when the work really kicked off. It's through interacting with the material, creating the material, and then thinking about ways in which to reconnect that material, which had an origin, an origin or a place that I was connected to, uh, to again build a home. So the yarn ball, in a way, has a great significance, right? Yeah, that's incredible. But, yeah. I definitely want to get into your relationship with the Bedouin women, specifically in the mm -hmm. community and what you're working on now, because I'm very curious. But I want to go for a second. This is something that I was going to talk about later, but we you mentioned it as really this compelling idea of asking questions as a tool. So your website is actually organized by these very deep and meaningful questions that the answer to are the projects that you have. And so you show people that your work is in that kind of dialogue between asking a question and answering the question. And the answer actually is often showing more questions in the process and it's a continuous loop. So I want mm -hmm. to, you know, a few of the questions on your website. How does design influence our social responsibilities? What does it mean mm -hmm. to be an artist in the digital age? Can empathy mm -hmm. create new material constructions? I wanted to mm -hmm. ask, you know, why did you decide to explain your work in this way? And what questions are you exploring now? I think that, you know, when I began thinking about how I want to share or present my work, I definitely explored different ways. For example, my studio space was one way that I kind of wanted to show at the forefront, at the landing page. You're, you're all of a sudden you're in my studio. But then, you know, I thought that a way that would be more engaging would be to compile the list of questions that I sort of was asking as I've been developing each project. And, you know, it's not like I went back to each project and I came up with a question, but my process is very much led by writing, by asking questions. And so I believe that questions, as I said, are a creative tool. They allow you to think, to uh, think about creative ways to resolve something or to potentially explore something. And also what I like about questions is that they're open-ended. So they're not finite. They're continuously changing and evolving. So this is exactly why I felt that questions would be a very important uh, starter to my practice. 
And in addition to questions, writing plays a big role, as you've talked about in your work. And in your mm -hmm. bio, I was very intrigued by this line that Abir continues to read backwards while writing forwards in order to surface and interrogate themes and narratives that echo her work and life. I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you about the connection that you have between documentation, collecting, which is a big part of your work as well, acts of remembrance and your design process. Well, first of all, I've always been, uh, I wouldn't say a collector, but I've always kept objects that triggered or that allowed me to remember something or that had kind of an impact on me within a certain experience or situation. But there are also a variety of objects. So there are objects that I make or objects that I find out in nature, or there are objects made by others, by the hands of others. And for me, objects hold great significance in terms of expressing a human consciousness, right? And I'm just interested in general in what people create and why they create them. But then what our relationship to these creations are. So I've always been inspired by that. I think that documenting has played such a vital role, especially writing. I've always maintained a diary. And for me, writing is not just, you know, putting thoughts on paper, but what writing does is it allows me to organize my ideas, make links, visible links, things that I can go back and read and see visually, right? Because I feel like if I don't write, then things would kind of get lost. There's just such a vast amount of information that is passing, you know, through us every single minute that things naturally get uh, lost in the way. So here, the, the role of documentation, I think, uh, becomes essential in the role of uh, using a pen and a paper as an outlet for emotions, for thinking, for imagination. And this, in a, in a very strange way, I think questions are kind of, not necessarily questions, but I, I think that when I look at the work that I do, I look at it more as a body that is continuously being transformed and, and is continuously evolving. Kind of like these narrative threads that I don't see each project or each work as, as an end by itself, but one project breeds another project, one question breeds another question, one thought breeds another thought. And I think that's where the power of documentation and collecting come, come into place and are very important to how I lead my practice. Yeah, I've seen some of your collections and heard about some of the stories of the collections that actually have led to wider projects. And mm -hmm. I would want to go back into the Badia, back into the Bedouin community. And I want you to talk to us specifically about what you found when you started connecting with the women and the work that you did to really highlight the patriarchal system and really uplift the kinds of practices. You talked a lot about the hand. And so the idea that you were really elevating, or not, I wouldn't say elevating, but you were highlighting the idea of the importance of handmaking, the importance going back to the source of the material, mm -hmm. uh, going back to the cultural heritage that is 
from the land in the people and taking that and actually you, you express that as a kind of technology moving forward mm -hmm. and really creating new forms, new systems. So I, I see so much of your work, especially meeting points, if people want to go back and reference that piece and, and look at it as you're in a constant dialogue with these women and with the community in terms of you learning from them these age-old uh, traditions mm -hmm. and technologies and the hand-making and the craft and respecting mm -hmm. it and honoring it in such a deep way. But in the same mm -hmm. time, you're bringing yourself and your aesthetics and your geometries and your passions, and you both together are creating something completely new and it's very, very, very Jordanian, which I love. It's very Abir, and it has that dialogue within it. So I, I'd love for you to speak to us about how that relationship continues to evolve and what are you working on now with the women? You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is to begin answering your question is my studio space was always in my home. I had a home studio situation and as I began, you know, exploring this material, my studio space started moving outwards and where I wasn't making or building in my studio, but I began practicing, I would say, uh, in situ. And I think that word is very important because traveling around, meeting people, interacting with them, living with them, eating with them, it kind of, first of all, takes you beyond the work itself where you become part of a daily life, right? The daily life that is not only within the space that you exist within as a studio space, but it becomes daily life shared with other people. And for me, this was fascinating because the Bedouin tent construction is all about that. It's all about building and weaving within a social arena. And Weaving is not a process that happens independently, but it's something where many women kind of contribute to. So it's a collaborative effort. So I think that being on the field really allowed me to understand the cultural context that I'm from on a deeper level, but also made me realize how similar we are as human beings. You know, we have the same issues. We have the same worries. We all eat, we all, you know, want to have fun. We, you know, the way we express our emotions to our family members, to our friends, is very alike. So that was for me revelatory, I must say, because, you know, people have different cultural norms and ways of interacting with others. So being on the field, I think, was such a significant aspect to the work that I'm doing. And it's, became kind of the work became more of a catalyst to this type of social interaction. Again, the work is important, but then the work becomes part of a dialogue between myself and the community. And this is what I like about what I do. This is why I think I enjoy it a lot. It's because, first of all, I don't design. I design as I move along. What I mean is that I don't just, you know, have an idea and I draw it out. No, it's a process. It's a material-driven process. And so things happen as I move along. And this dialogue that I'm talking about happens with the community. So I don't just impose an idea that needs to be executed. That's not the way I work. It's more like, this is what I'm interested in. 
this is the idea I have in mind. What do you think? And do you think you can add on to that? And then, you know, this kind of like back and forth process happens, right? So I, I think for me, when I first started exploring Bedouin tent and Bedouin tent craftsmanship, over the years, I realized that the Bedouin tent is not being woven again, no longer, due to industrialization, due to technology. But mostly, I think urbanization and development started kind of encroaching into these natural spaces. And at the beginning, I was very mad about that. I, I didn't like that situation. I didn't like the situation of seeing concrete houses being built in the middle of a desert, uh, you know, while women's kind of skillful knowledge of Bedouin tent craft making has kind of been sidelined. Before you mm-hmm. go into all of that, can you tell everybody mm-hmm. about this Bedouin tent and, you know, Shad? I remember you explaining this to me about the process of how long it would take to make mm-hmm. a traditional Bedouin tent and what mm-hmm. that was replaced with out of kind of necessity mm-hmm. in industrialization and modernity and how people are actually using the desert as a tourist location. You know, what is a traditional Bedouin tent and what does it take to make one? Well, first of all, it's funny because we refer to it in English as being a tent, while in Arabic it's a bait, it's a home. And what I did when I first went and started talking to these Bedouins, I referred to it as Khayme. So I translated kind of the English name of it or reference, the way it was referenced as a tent to Arabic. And uh, I was, you know, bombarded with kind of criticism, like this is not a tent, this is a home. This is a home. This is a home. And it took me time to understand what that meant. And I think that the meaning of that is really essentially the core of what we're discussing today, but also the core of my practice, right? It's the meaning of home. And it's what what you're exploring as well, what you've also been exploring, kind of what is a home? What is home? And so this was kind of like an entry point for me. The Bedouin tent, what was fascinating for me is that it's completely woven by the women. And it is hand-woven out of goat's hair. So it's a material that is collected every year when the goats are being sheared and then turned into, spun into yarn. That yarn basically creates uh, cloths. And those cloths are connected to each other in order to create the tent structure. Of course, there are different parts of the tent. But one interesting aspect also is that you have different tent typologies. So you have a two-bedroom tent, I would say bedroom, room tent, or three, four, as the family grows, the size of the tent gets bigger. And how? The interesting thing that I discovered is that the length of the cloth for a two-room tent is measured in a very specific way. So the women use their bodies as a measuring device to measure their homes. And in order to measure the length of the cloth, they hold the yarn and they start counting. So when I would ask any Bedouin woman, how many heads are a two-bedroom tent? You know, one would say 35, another would say 37, 30, but it would always roam around that same number. And that was just fascinating. I mean, this is one method of using the body to measure the tent. But what I realized as I began witnessing the weaving process is that It's a performative act, and it's actually a performative activity. Things are happening around 
weaving, children are playing, they're jumping over the yarns, you know, over the warp, you know, you eat besides the warp. So things are happening around it. And again, so that was very powerful is the creation of a home, but also home is already there in a way. It's already happening. So that's what's fascinating. Uh, Now, the whole idea of the concrete structures that were being built, of course, in my film, Matters of Time, I kind of explore, you know, matriarchal architecture of the Bedouin tent and then the patriarchal architecture of the concrete kind of homes, or I would say ecologies in the desert. And while I made that distinction at the start, I'm now more interested in my practice to kind of find a way to merge those two worlds together. Because, you know, I realize that industrialization is not going anywhere. Mass production is not going anywhere. Concrete might not go anywhere. But what we can do is we can begin thinking about new ways in order to adapt and to evolve these materials that are harmful to the environment. So how can we begin merging those soft and hard materials together? How can we instead of thinking about patriarchy and matriarchy, that already creates conflict. How can we kind of harmoniously weave them into each other? So this takes me back to something even more important, which is the question of origin and of the land and of our connection with nature and with the land and what that means and how we take care of the land. So the project that I've been focusing on or developing is to try to create a new structural fabric with the Bedouins, utilizing traditional knowledge, but also bringing in uh, contemporary design processes in order to reinterpret, I would say, shelter in a new way. A shelter that becomes a part of a mobile cultural space that gathers community into events that host cultural experiences but also simultaneously through these handmade processes, it's to communicate the materiality of these shelters uh, to the person experiencing them and to talk about the land, to talk about the Bedouins and to talk about, you know, our own community. So that's kind of material, I think, for me is really important because thinking about material from a holistic perspective, in terms of what are its effects on the environment, what can we do to recreate new cultural forms with these materials? How can we combine soft and hard materials together? It has become kind of at the forefront of my practice and and how it kind of fits into new uh, contexts. I'm very intrigued by this idea of connecting both languages and both the both processes and and kind of merging into something that works in a different way and taking both sides, which is something that you're very good at. I wanted to ask, how much time do you actually spend in the Badia? Well, I go back and forth and it's not just the Badia. I travel all around the country from north to south and within the city, my activities pretty intense actually. But when I'm weaving a project, I would go on for three weeks you know, three weeks being in a different, I would say, reality, living a different reality for three weeks, weaving and just kind of completely disconnecting from the world or from the place that you're used to being in, 
right? It's kind of readjusting and adjusting into a new environment that has nothing to do with yours, right? And and when I say it has nothing to do with yours, I'm talking about simple things. I'm talking about kind of like yeah. the act of sitting on a chair is non-existent, right? Mm-hmm. So you're constantly, you know, going up and down, sitting on the ground, right? And here, what's interesting for me is that your relationship to the ground changes, right? Yeah. You're no longer kind of elevated, but you become closer to the surface that kind of, I would say, equalizes or connects you to people in a very different way. Sitting on the floor is, for me, one of the most significant acts or things that has impacted me throughout this process. And I think it has also made me think about the ground in a new way, not in terms of earth only, but also in terms of how I'm creating the structures, what their scale are how they're being connected to the ground, what the ground condition is. Why is that important? And have we taken off? That's incredible. You know? That, I mean, just so, the idea of that becoming, really putting yourself in new situations and exposing yourself to a completely different method of living and experiencing maybe that discomfort that becomes part of, you know, actually finding comfort in that. I remember, you know, remember at, when we were at RISD, Every time we would design a project, there was always a question of how does this connect to the ground? Mm -hmm. And it was always so conceptual. You know, it was in Mm -hmm. that drawing of like the actual meeting uh, between whatever you're building and the ground. And Mm -hmm. it would be one of those really annoying questions, to be honest, of Mm -hmm. how do you turn a corner? Mm -hmm. How does the wall meet the floor? And you'd be like, what are you actually talking about? And what you're talking about now is you're literally doing that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think about those things all the time, actually. And I just feel like, very strangely enough, I'm constantly addressing and readdressing those questions that were asked to us during our first, like a sophomore year in, in or first year in architecture. It's like, you know, how does it let light in? You know, what is the system? You know, looking at tectonics and connections to the ground and a relationship between wall and ceiling are things that are constantly on my mind. And I feel that they are the essentials of architecture and of shelter in a way. Absolutely. And, and also, sorry, and also one other thing I'd like to just add to that is that traveling back and forth, whether it's within your country or outside of it, is really important to understanding and reshaping your perceptions about your home. So for me, home as a physical place, I would say it's Jordan, it's Amman, it's my space. And going back and forth, living in other places within you know the country or, or even outside of it, this place I'm in here becomes kind of a reference point. And my perception of it is constantly changing. So I'll give you one small example. So I'm a collector. I have objects and things in my home. And when I go down and live with the Bedouins, it's like their essentials, right? So four members of the family have four plates, four forks, four knives, and it is what is needed. Nothing extra. No embellishments. Decoration, yes, but expressed in a different way. But only necessities. So I'd be living in that reality for about three weeks. And then when I come back to my space and to the city... You know, it would take me about three days to readjust to that new reality. And then I start looking around me and questioning, what is this stuff? What does it mean? 
of course, not uh, diminishing anything that I've created for myself, but more like trying to understand my surrounding in a different way. So here, a new dialogue begins again, you know, a conversation between yourself and, and the space you exist in, where I try to constantly, you know, find the meanings or sometimes even not ask, just let things be the way they are. But it's always this kind of like, you know, going between here and there uh, just shows a new lens, I, I would say, into where I am and where I live, how I live. That's incredible. I think that's something that every one of us can do on a smaller scale in our own lives. And I think it's very, mm -hmm. very important to take yourself out of your own comfort zone and travel you know, whether that is just, you know, we experienced this during COVID, you know, people talking about walking, even in areas in your own neighborhood that you haven't walked in before to look at things in a different light. And you can actually do that in your daily life without mm -hmm. having to go to the desert for three weeks and questioning mm -hmm. your surroundings and questioning all the stuff that we surround ourselves with. It's a very healthy mm -hmm. practice. So I want to go to weaving a home. I think this is such an essential project in your work. It's something that you continue to evolve over the past mm -hmm. 10 years. This project, like I said before, won the Lexus Prize in uh, 2013. I remember that very clearly. And when you did this uh, design for this competition, it was basically a re-envisioned tent for displaced people in the context of the Syrian war. Mm -hmm. Jordan has sheltered over 660,000 Syrian refugees with the unofficial number being known to be well over 1 million people. And Jordan has obviously sheltered many refugees from other other areas in the region, from Iraq, from Palestine. It really is a community of uh, welcoming people from surrounding countries and everybody melding into this community that is continuously evolving Jordan. I know that the project of reinventing or re-envisioning what a tent or a shelter can be in the context of displacement is something that you're very committed to. And mm -hmm. so... It's been almost 10 years since you've won mm -hmm. the prize. I know mm -hmm. that you continuously work on it. Even if you visit Abir's website, mm -hmm. you'll see actually two entries for the tent that mm -hmm. shows that it's being in evolution. And the process of building the tent has been something that you've been working on for so many years. So can you talk about where this project is now, how you're thinking about it? Hello? And what does it mean to continuously evolve this concept? Well, first of all, I think that when I created or when I designed Weaving a Home in 2013, I was uh, responding to, you know, the refugee crisis and kind of the whole idea of dignified shelter, providing dignified shelter for refugees. So the project really explores the social and cultural significance of shelter that's also inspired by Bedouin tents and nomadic lifestyles. And as I said earlier on, as I continued my research, I realized that what I'm designing or what I want to create is not a product, but a process because I was not interested in creating a product personally. And I don't believe that architecture is a product. It's a physical thing. I, I believe that architecture is a process of creation, of creating and of communicating and of interacting with community. And so one other thing that I feel weaving a home opened up for me is my interpretation or understanding of displacement, the word displacement. So when I created the t Weaving a Home at Start, we were talking about displacement of Syrian refugees. 
or Syrians. And then slowly as I began entrenching myself within my own cultural context, I realized that there are so many different forms of displacement. So the Bedouins are being displaced from their nomadic homes, forced into settling into kind of more settled urban environments. And also looking at my own history, my mother, for example, or my father was, you know, displaced from the conflict in Palestine. My mother was displaced from, again, from a rural to an urban area. But also the whole idea of displacement for me kind of shifted. I wouldn't say towards my own community because displacement, I think, is, in terms of its definition, is clear and is consistent throughout all of these different scenarios. I think the manifestations are just different. So the reason then why I went to back to my Bedouin communities, because I thought that everything that Weaving a Home 2013 showed me exists within the Bedouin tent. And so the next thing for me was how can I combine traditional knowledge and locally sourced building materials with advanced structural systems and I would say my own design processes in order to create an architecture that is both environmentally conscious and culturally relevant, but also question contemporary living practices simultaneously. So weaving a home is continuously being woven and it is tackling this idea of displacement and the idea of trying to answer the question of what is a home. But I think that for me, what I think took precedence within that whole process is that my whole journey of research and experimentation began slowly challenging these kinds of like dominant structural forms that are prevalent in modern architecture. And so that took me to kind of trying to synthesize traditional building practices with, you know, new design processes. And this kind of experimentation, I think, began generating new cultural forms and also material experiences that enforce, I would say, the environmental rootedness of indigenous knowledge and practices. And so here I'm highlighting the cultural significance of now repurposing, reappropriating kind of as a necessary, I would say, precursor to advancing new and more sustainable modes of building. So it's no longer about, you know, what we design and build, but how we choose to design and build. And I think the evolution of this project is kind of veering towards that direction. And not only through the creation of the actual prototyping for the structure, but the system has manifested through other projects like Meeting Points or, you know, my latest terroir. I find myself building those other adjacent, uh, you know, projects in order to come back ultimately into my dome structure and, and then know how to build it with the community. Do you imagine seeing these, the tents being used by people, your design or your creation being built and used by people? Or do you imagine it constantly being this process where it's evolving into different things and maybe people taking from it something and making it their own? How do you imagine seeing this in the world? Well, I think the, the tent, I see it in every way. I mean, I see it as a roof of a building, I see it. <laughs> I see it as a, you know, educational space, as a, I see it in many different ways. I see it as being used by people. I see it in as, uh, urban interventions. I see it, uh, you know, being built on different materials. So, but I think there needs to be a focus, of course. And my objective is to create 
a structure that is able to be used by or can be used by multiple people. Now, exactly how that will manifest, I'm still in the process of resolving that. But what I would like to primarily say is that for me, is moving from one process to another is what's more important and what's more meaningful to me. It's architecture and thing, and something being built that is happening. Something is happening all the time. Yeah. It's not that things are stagnant. No, but there's movement. There's movement through creating, through exploring new territories and materials, interacting with different people. This is constantly happening. So that's, I think, what's important to me is, is that the scale that I'm working at or with is, is kind of small at the moment. And the part of me wants to remain that way. You know, a part of me doesn't want to, I'm not saying that I don't want to lose control. This is not about that. On the contrary. I mean, I would be very happy if some community in the Southern Badia is, you know, making a structure without kind of my guidance or my supervision. But I like that scale in which I operate in. It's a scale of a community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we head into the rapid fire questions, I just wanted to Mm -hmm. say that it's just been extraordinary watching your journey. We'll share some of the images of your work when we post this episode, but I hope people will go into Abir's work and really see the visuals behind all of the things that she's talking about. I remember your projects when we were at RISD and I can still see those seeds in your work now that have changed completely and have evolved, but also Mm -hmm. I see just these very different ways. You know, sometimes I'll see, you know, a post that you put on Instagram, like, where did this come from? And what are you doing? And why are you making these like yarns or these different kinds of structures? And it seems like it just came out of nowhere, but it really never really came out of nowhere. It always is so rooted. Mm -hmm. So I love watching from afar that process becomes very, very clear to see that, you know, it's a lineage and it's been really, really amazing to watch it. You have a very unique discipline of making, of honoring your craft, of honoring your heritage, and also bringing into it that global view point that you have and all of the things that you've brought in from the world. So it's a very unique gift that you're bringing to Jordan and to the world. Thanks, Delina. Thanks. <laughs> so That's a lot coming from the me, questions but... that I ask every guest... Yes. <laughs> and I re- always still hope that we can make something together. I mean, we've made some things together, but I want to do more in the future. Of course. I'm sure we will. So my first question is complete this sentence. Home is where? Home is where I think memories of, you know, the ones that you love and the experiences that you have are woven into, I would say, the fabric of everyday life. It's kind of like, again, I talk about transcending physical boundaries and home, you know, transcends physical boundaries and kind of becomes a dynamic process that evolves with us as we move through different phases and stages in our lives. For me, home is a shelter that we create for ourselves. So talking about belonging, offering comfort and a sense of belonging wherever we are. Home is where you know, every thread in our life is interwoven and, you know, it it kind of like shapes us into, in these diverse settings and stages of, you know, our journey through life. So that's, that's home. 
I love that. If you had to leave home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? My hard drive. <laughs> I can believe that. What's one piece of advice that you would give a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? I mean, of course, bring in your experiences to a place, but also be flexible and adapt to whatever place you're in. But one thing I would like to tell a refugee is that you might lose your personal belongings, but always remember to hold on to your dignity as you seek a sense of belonging in a new place. So that's something I would say, hold on to your dignity. That's one thing you should never let go of. Or that, that, you know, you should never let go of and don't have to lose. Yeah. Give us a list of three unexpected places that people must visit in your hometown. Hometown. Hometown as an Amman, right? Yeah, um, however you want to define that. Well, hometown, yeah. I would say Amman because it's the first kind of stop. Well, there's definitely food related to that. There's a place I really like on the second circle called Tambiya Tamar. It's a dessert that is made out of this thing called sweet and then wrapped in a very fine dough and then fried with kind of like sprinkles of very fine sugar. <laughs> it's not the healthiest, but it's something that one must try. One place I love in Amman is the Citadel because it's high on top of a mountain that offers 360 views into the city. Our city is very kind of hilly and the view is just impeccable, but also it's a historical space and within the city. And I love this juxtaposition between this historical place the artifacts and the monuments it holds in the midst of this densely populated urban environment. I love that contrast. I think that I would give people advice on where to visit and what's a must to see in Amman, but I'd also like to be a tour guide. And so I would take them to the home of a very, very, very old family friend named Mandouh Sharad whose home is built in the middle of the old part of Amman from 1932. And it is not just his home that's special, but he is a phenomenal human being that basically imbues all of the characteristics that I aspire to be or become. And he's a cultural figure, he's a poet, he's an artist, he's a landowner. And he's just a beautiful person. So I would love to introduce people to, you know, my own community and my close friends. That's beautiful. I mean, you would make an incredible tour guide of Amman and of Jordan. <laughs> Maybe in, you know, I, I was, <laughs> No, I, I actually, it's funny because after COVID, I went to a school here that offers a six-month course into tour guiding. And I thought, what okay. better way would it be? to learn about my own country through this tour guiding course, because it, it goes through kind of geology, geography, archaeology, and so on. And I love tour guiding because I feel like tour guiding is also a performative kind of act in a way. So I love performing. And so <laughs> performing in my country would be just beautiful. That's incredible. What dish tastes like home to you? Mansa. What a Dawali. I mean, endless. But I would say Mansaf. Mansaf is definitely very 
kind of cliche answer, but very distinctive. Yeah. And just side note here is that Abir's mother is an incredible, incredible cook and has a lifetime of culinary experience. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that you're very privileged in that way as well. No, and my brother as well now. So yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. So my last question is, and I know that you're an avid reader and you're a mm-hmm. deep reader and you mm-hmm. read very eclectically. What's mm-hmm. a book or books that you love and have recommended to your friends? Well, there's a uh, short novella by an Argentinian author. His name is Casares, Adolfo Casares. It's called The Invention of Morale. And uh, it's about 90 pages. Uh, the book explores views of reality, of illusion, and a kind of the human, a human desire for connection. And the narrator is, is, is not named in the book, but uh, basically the narrator is like uh, stranded uh, on a deserted island and discovers that the people there are not real, but they're recordings. And Morel, who invented this machine, he's the inventor, basically, that created this machine that captures human experiences. And so what I really love about this book is that it really blurs the lines between reality and illusion. And, of course, the story delves into many philosophical questions and the consequences of, I would say, technological advancement. And it's just this very interesting, I would say, work of what I really like as a genre called magic realism. So that's kind of like more like uh, falls within like uh, Latin American literature. But you also find other authors that kind of also write using magical uh, realism. I really like, you know, the merging of those two worlds. Amazing. I will definitely check it out. I always love Mm -hmm. your recommendations. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Abid, for being so generous with your time today and joining Belongings. This was such an enlightening conversation. I definitely feel very inspired. I was waiting for that invitation. (laughs) So it finally happened. (laughs) Yes. Very excited. Yeah. We had a little bit of detours along the way, but we're very, this really having these conversations with the people that I respect and admire and love was the catalyst of even creating this podcast because I know that there's so many experiences and so much that you've learned and people have learned that we can share with each other. Mm -hmm. And that's really at the heart of this podcast is to share that with everybody else. So I really hope everybody checks out Abir's work watches her TED talk. She has an amazing Yale lecture and really, you know, connects the dots between all of the things that we talked about and the things that she's making and continues to follow your work. And I'm definitely very intrigued on what you make next and, um, and just appreciate everything that you do. Thank you, Lina. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Everyone, I'm just so excited to share this conversation that I had with Yusuf El Yusuf, one of the Karam House mentors of innovative education at Karam House Istanbul. This human being is beyond inspiring. We are so proud of him. He is our first hire as a Karam Scholars graduate. So he got one of our scholarships and was able to attend university in Turkey. He is an electrical engineer and he came to Karam House as a mentor for the past year and has just been incredible with the students. And his journey is super inspiring, powerful, 
filled with determination, not afraid of failure, definitely finding so much success. And get this, he's on his way to Exeter University this fall for his master's degree in engineering and business, which is just beyond incredible. He is really someone to watch. He's going to do incredible things in the future. In this conversation, he tells me all about his journey from Aleppo to Istanbul and the hardship that he faced along the way, the kinds of things that he went through that are really an example of what millions of young Syrians around the world go through on their difficult journeys to finding their way through school, high school, university, and finding a career path. It's something that we're all very passionate about. He's helping so many other people along the way, and it just was great to talk to him. One part from the conversation that really stuck with me, and if you know me, you know that I'm obsessed with the show The Bear, is when he describes his time at university as taking advantage of every opportunity, every moment of doing all the different kinds of experiences, even if he wasn't good at them or he found that he couldn't succeed in them and expressing that really reminded me of every second counts and it's something that we can all live by and practice in our daily lives. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Yusuf. Hi, Yusuf. Welcome to Belongings. Hi. Hi, Lina. It's really great to have you here today, and I'm so excited to talk to you about all of your experiences at Karam House and your experiences as really one of our young leaders that we're very proud of. Thank you. It's a pleasure of mine being in your podcast. So for everybody listening in, Yusuf Yusuf is one of our Karam House mentors in Istanbul and also one of our Karam Scholars graduates. So we're very proud to share his story with you and have him talk to us today about his journey and how he became a mentor and what he's doing next. He's speaking to us from Istanbul today. So welcome, Yusuf. My first question to you is something I ask all of our guests, and I wanted you to tell us about what does belonging mean to you? For me, belonging doesn't have to be attached or related to a specific country or a place. Belonging means you feel that uh, you're alive. You feel that either if that means you're beside your family, you're doing something you're passionate about, you're helping someone else. This is where you feel that you're belonging to that place. That's really a beautiful definition. And I know that passion and determination is such a big part of your story. So we're going to be talking about those pieces more. My second question is something we do with all of our guests, which is to map home. And this is why you have your pencil and paper. And I ask all mm-hmm. of our guests to make a map of home. Home can be where you're from in the past, where you are now, where you're going. It could also be an abstract piece or a symbol. It could be a floor plan. And then I would like you to tell us a story about your drawing. So we can take a few minutes for you to make your drawing. So Yusuf, could you please tell us about your map? Yes, absolutely. Okay. As you see in this uh, simple sketch, there is our planet Earth and a moon beside it. So if we look closely on the planet, we see that I drew five mini houses. The first one has a small heart beside it. This is Aleppo, where I lived my lovely childhood and I raised up there. And the first arrow takes us to a second home located in our village. This is where after the revolution started, we had to move to, that, to the village. 
I spent a few months there with my family, then had to come to Turkey as a refugee, which is the second era. Brings us to Istanbul, the third house I had to move, move to. In Istanbul, where I graduated from high school and applied for my university, which takes us to the third arrow, to Usmania, where I studied my university. And now, hopefully, there is a fourth arrow that takes us to the UK, where I will be doing my master's degree. I really love this concept that you marked the planet Earth with the houses or the locations of where you found home. And so I want to ask you more about this. If you can tell us a little bit more about your journey from Aleppo to Istanbul. Yeah, absolutely. So I was in the seventh grade where bombs started to drop beside our schools and we had no other choice than moving to our village than to Istanbul. In Istanbul, with my lovely family support, I was able to graduate from high school, despite being dropped out of school for two years before that. I spent then for two years at Usmaniye, one year at Elazığ. I attended a student exchange program. When I first got to Usmaniye, I realized that we had a lot of free time and some students are really using this free time wisely. And I also tried so I was volunteering, trying to give courses. I mean, helping others as much as I can, even attending every opportunity possible. I remember once I signed up for a chess competition before even knowing how to play chess. So I was drawing myself to these experiences, to these gatherings, speeches by professors. I mean, using every second of the university life because I realized that these four years are going to pass anyway. So why not make use of it? That's really incredible. I mean, I wanted to ask, you know, there's right now, as you know, more than me, there's millions of Syrian refugees who've taken journeys similar to yours from different places where they're from in Syria to outside the country. And so many thousands of young people just like you who left the country and had to skip school for different reasons and being outside of school for a few years. This is really one of the foundations of Karam's work is to intervene and help people just like you who are out of the school system. So could you tell people about what that experience is like as a young teenager being out of school and then getting to university? How did you do that? And what did it take for you to be able to move from somebody who was out of school completely in a foreign country and getting into higher education? First of all, you need to have that uh that potential, that passion. I mean, you actually want to study and achieve something and help others. And you also need someone to support you. I mean, a family beside you, a scholarship. You have to find someone to support you because it's really challenging to manage all this by yourself. For my experience, it was the first two years I was depending on myself and family in order to complete my studies. Then I got accepted into the Karam scholarship for my third and fourth years at the university, which was an amazing experience because I liked how Karam focuses on education and encourages us to volunteer. I mean, if someone wants to volunteer and needs that small push or encouragement, Karam will do that. But personally, I was already volunteering, but uh, I wanted to prove it to Karam that they have chosen a right scholar to represent them. This was an extra motivation for me. Karam's support wasn't only financial, by the way. 
when I was a scholar in the HE program, I liked how they organized a lot of online workshops for us in different topics, such as preparing CV, studying methods, and much more. After graduating, I received an email saying that Karam is looking for an innovative education mentor, and I immediately applied because it was an amazing opportunity for me to give back to Karam in the first place and also gain the experience in real full-time job. After the interview, they sent me an assignment, which uh, was a creating a studio idea with a deadline of 48 hours. I remember not sleeping these days in order to impress them. And I ended up sending them seven different studio ideas. So yeah, thankfully they accepted me and it was one of the best years in my life. Uh, gaining the experience, the network, the connections, all the workshops that uh, staff are benefiting from. And most importantly, my lovely students, I mean, all these studios during this year, I was so happy to mentor them and help them understand these concepts and building their projects. That's really lovely. I remember when you interviewed and I remember seeing your projects that you proposed and having those seven studios that you created and really mm -hmm. going above and beyond the assignment. I mean, everybody was amazed. And, you know, I've told you this before, having, uh, being able to hire one of our Karam Scholars graduates, this is really a dream of mine that I thought we were still years away, but you proved that we are very, you know, that we, there are so many people like you that are waiting for an opportunity because I always thought, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to support young people, help them get through university and hire them back into Kedem House for that first job experience and career experience before they're able to move on to something else. And you are our first. So it's been really amazing to get to know you and to see how much you've grown in this year as a mentor and also see how much you've given to Karam. And we're very, very grateful for that. It's my honor, actually. I mean, it's an opportunity to give back to Karam House in the first place. Thank you. I mean, you do set a journey, you know, these kinds of pieces that seem to be very simple and seem to be very obvious to others, but they're not because so many people don't have this opportunity, which is that to be passionate about something, to pursue it with the determination that you have, and then having that support, whether it is a family support, an organization support, somebody supporting a young person's dream, and then also going beyond the financial support and giving all of the other pieces that help somebody grow. Those are the things that any young person around the world, whether you're a refugee or not, that's what you need to succeed. And it makes me so happy to see that you were able to put all of those pieces together. And so much of it came from you and your determination. Yes, we have to understand that we're responsible of our life. I mean, if we want to make a change in our life first and the life of people who, who we love, who we admire, we have to do something and, uh, I mean, try our best at least. Absolutely. So I wanted to just ask you about one thing that I think when you first joined Karam, I'd heard about this. Is it true that before you were in high school or when you in those years where you were not in school at all, that you were working? Yeah. When first I came to Turkey as a refugee, I had to work for a few months before my me and my family decided that I have to complete my high school. This is where I started studying for the final high school year and graduated here from Turkey. After that, I spent one year studying for the YOS exam, which is an exam you need as an international student in order to study in Turkish universities. So in the year after the high school, I was preparing for the YOS exam and also 
working a part-time job and uh, studying Turkish. But after I... And what was your job? What were you doing? I did a lot of jobs, actually. I did the translating. I did the data entry. I worked in a sewing company once. So multiple, multiple jobs. And how old were you when you were working? Between 17 and 21. So when you were doing these kinds of jobs and you were a teenager trying to get into university, doing the entry exams, did you meet a lot of young Syrians like you? Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the gatherings, the, the studying courses, I mean, the Turkish language course. I've met a lot of young people who are also passionate, who are also doing their best. I believe a lot of them are now successful, even more than me. And um, it's something I'm really proud of it. But it's also unfortunate to see that uh, not everyone had that chance. It's really a story that makes me sad. I remember when I was working in sewing company when I was around 17 or 18 years old. We had that child who was around 11 years old. He was Syrian. He was working with us. A few weeks from now, I went beside that uh, place where I used to work and I saw the same person still working there. Yeah, he grew up, but he didn't have the chance. Probably he's the one who's responsible on his family, despite his age. But uh, this is life. It's not fair. And it really makes me sad and makes me want to help in help some way, some, somehow. So I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm having these opportunities because it only, only wanting to do it and actually seeking for it and working for it isn't enough. If sometimes life makes it impossible for you, like this young teenager I mentioned earlier, I mean, for him, it might be impossible to. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the reason why I'm asking these questions of you, and I really am grateful for you talking about these experiences, because they're probably not the best memories in all of this. And, but I wanted people to understand, you know, I think a lot of times, we see success stories like you and people forget about all of the other people that, you know, are like you and are also being successful and some people that don't make it because of the circumstances. Maybe they didn't have one of the elements that you talked about of trying to find that success and not being able to find a way out. You know, these young people that work in factories or work in these kinds of labor intensive jobs that we see a lot of refugee youth uh, being pulled into because they need to support their families and getting out of that and getting back into the journey of education and school and higher education is a very, very difficult one. And when you talked about applying to the scholarship, you know, Karam Scholars is a program that I'm so proud of. And at the same time, every time we open up a new cohort or a new scholarship cycle, we get thousands of applications for, you know, last year it was 75 seats and we got, I think, around 3,500 applications. And this is just a fraction of the people that even hear about the scholarship. We open it up for a very short amount of time and we're overwhelmed with applications of incredible human beings that want to have that chance and opportunity and can find success. So I would just want people to hear from somebody like Yusuf, this is the real life example of a young Syrian refugee who is finding so much success just because you had the determination, you had all of the pieces inside of you and you had the opportunity. I would like to add something here that uh, what I really appreciate about Karam Scholarship, the HE program, that it's not random. I mean, 
I used to apply for many scholarships and unfortunately, most of them are basically random. I mean, once I interviewed for a scholarship and it only lasted for a few minutes, he, he, they only asked me about my name and what am I studying? I mean, it's, it's basically only for the archiving that we have interviewed. I mean, it's not really evaluating this person. But when I applied for Karam scholarship, the questions in the scholarship application themselves shows me that they actually want people like me who have the determination, who have the passion, who wants to actually make a difference. And they are seeking for actual opportunities to prove themselves. So this is why I spent days preparing for my application for Karam scholarship, because I know that they care and they will read everything I write. This is something that I really appreciate about Karam scholarship. Thank you so much. Yes, you're making me smile because there's a lot of effort that the team and everybody has put into the actual process because we do want to help the people who are like you. And also we want to be doing a really good job in evaluating and making sure that we're giving the scholarships to the people that uh, really deserve it and need it. And uh, we ask a lot of questions for people to write about what they want to study and why. And it makes me very happy to hear that from you from the other side of the process, that uh, the way that we've developed the program, which is completely organic, has that impact on the people applying. Exactly, yes. So you studied quantum computing, is that correct, at the university? No, that was my graduating thesis. It was about quantum computing and the working principle behind it. But uh, my major is electrical and electronics engineering. And now I am going to do my master's degree in the UK in the Department of uh, Engineering Business Management, which is a scholarship also that I think you're aware of that uh, Karam also provided me with a recommendation letter that's helped me a lot in this uh, scholarship application. Yes, it's a scholarship from our friends at Jusur, which is also an organization we really love. And we're happy to have been part of this process. I mean, going to Exeter University and doing this master's in engineering and business is such an incredible opportunity and an accomplishment. So tell us a little bit about why this field of study, why electrical engineering, I don't even know what quantum computing is. And now engineering and business, it seems like you're into technology. I know that you're into startup culture. Tell us about what your vision is for yourself in the future and why you're passionate about studying these fields. As I mentioned earlier, I'm someone who loves to try new things and gain as much experience as he can in order to use it for, I mean, helping others, those who in need. So first of all, I love technology and I wanted to study software or computer engineering in the first place. But uh, the program I got accepted to was electrical and electronics engineering, which after actually studying it, I loved it. I mean, I built a lot of projects, helped my friends building their projects, their, helped them in their assignments. I mean... I had really fun building these circuits and programming and seeing the actual outcome in front of you, whether it's a robot or it's a circuit or it's a software simulation, whatever it is. I mean, I like doing these projects after I started my major. And when, it's, when it came to the graduating thesis, I have that thing inside me that I want to one day, I mean, be a part of something, something new, something that not everyone heard of, or I don't know how to exactly explain it, but then I read that article about quantum computing, which is a whole new way of uh, building processors and computers, and it's way to 
faster than the classic computers. I did some research and I liked the topic and I did my thesis about it. Then I somehow figured out that, uh, yeah, it's something I would like to research and work on, but uh, it's not in Turkey. The circumstances didn't help me to complete on this topic. Maybe someday I will, but not currently. So I started to see for opportunities outside. I wanted to maybe at least start with, with building a business, but it was challenging. I mean, being a refugee here and also not having that experience in business management, I have a lot of ideas, but not the, the actual experience. This is why when it came to my application in the XK University, I've chosen the engineering business management because it's like a puzzle in my mind and this major completes the puzzle. I mean, if I have that extra skill and degree from that university, I believe that I will be able to firstly start the business if possible. Secondly, help Syrian refugees who are in my age, who are new graduates, helping them to maybe find a job, maybe, maybe helping them in building their businesses or entrepreneurship or, I mean, this kind of stuff that I would love to help others in. So this is why I apply for this major because it both benefits me and the Syrian refugees all around the world. What are you most excited about going to Exeter University and leaving Turkey? Here in Turkey, we're facing a lot of challenges as refugees. I'm sure you heard of the deportation that's happening, all these challenges. You're not able to work in a city other than city you're uh, registered in. So first of all, uh, getting rid of these challenges and being able to work or study whatever I want, it's a huge plus for me. And secondly, of course, Exeter, as it's the 140th university around the world, having this degree is like having, I think, like having superpowers. It will help me to, it will build me a lot of connections, first of all, that I'll do my very best to use them in order to maybe find internship opportunities for new graduates from Turkey, because I'm not the only one who's suffering from this uh, refugee situation in Turkey. There's a lot of new graduates that aren't finding a job. So I'm really excited to see how I will be using this opportunity in order to help others who need this help. Of course, you've always been very passionate about helping others. And you've talked a little bit about the work that you did while you were in university to volunteer and help other students find their pathways to higher education. And you established something called the Student Tech Forums. Was that while you were in university? Yeah, exactly. So when I was in university, I used to give online courses and also face-to-face -face courses to engineering students who were in their, in their first and second years. I mean, something like basics of uh, electronics, basics of programming, Python programming languages, this kind of stuff. So I was volunteering with an organization that uh, closed after my first year. So I had to find a place to give these courses at. This is where me and my friend established this uh, form. It's not so active right now, but it used to be. I'm thinking about uh, activating it again. So the main reason behind establishing it was uh, to have a place where students can come to and uh, benefit from these courses. It's really incredible. 
Can you tell us a little bit about, you've been with us for one year at Karam House as an innovative education mentor. I know that you've really enjoyed your time and enjoyed mentoring young people at Karam House. Tell us a little bit about the experience. You know, do you have a favorite studio that you taught or a favorite project from one of your students? What are you taking away from this one year experience before you move on to your next chapter at Exeter? I mean, there's a lot of things to mention answering this question, but the most thing I like, I mean, having this special connection with the students, it's not a teacher student kind of uh, thing. It's a friend to a friend, a friend helping his friend building that project or learning this new skill. So I like that we had that type of connection between me and the students. In this last studio, which was Explorer Boats, in the last day, students brought me flowers and uh, <laughs> biscuits as a thank you for me. I actually, I couldn't, I mean, I felt really happy because I see that students are actually enjoying the studio. They are not coming only for a degree or for anything. They're coming to have fun and learn. Also, some students in their final page of the presentation, they add a small note, say, thank you, Yusuf. These small things makes me really happy and makes me feel that I actually helped someone in learn a new concept, learn a new skill. I mean, they're seeing these young teenagers who didn't even start the university having these skills. And I was a part of it. Makes me feel amazing. Well, you very much deserve it. I remember when I saw you last time I was in Turkey after the earthquake and I was in Istanbul at Kerem House and it was such a difficult time for everybody going through this, even though Istanbul was far from where the earthquake happened, but we were feeling the effects of it on all of the staff and the team and the students, everybody being somehow affected by people and their families or friends and loved ones, either in Syria and Turkey that were affected directly by the earthquake. And we had students coming in and needing a lot of reassurance and support and a lot of love. And I remember that you would teach studios all day long. And then in between the studios at lunchtime and after studios, you'd be outside playing with everybody in the garden because you just wanted to give people the experience of normalcy, of play, of some kind of joy, even in this very difficult time. And I know that that wasn't easy on you, but you were doing it to be able to give that kind of happiness to these kids that needed it most. Exactly, because they're not just students for me. There are teenagers that I actually care about and uh, seeing them sad makes me want to do a little thing as much as I can to help, help them smile again. Yusuf, you're really one of the model leaders that I dream about having 10,000 of them in the future, because if we really had 10,000 people like you, I know that we could not only change the reality for Syria, but really the reality in the world, because there's no limits to how much change and positivity and ripple effects of really powerful changes in the world that can happen from people like you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And never forget that Karam House was a part of it. I mean. Absolutely. So before I move on to our rapid fire questions and finish off this interview and this really, I mean, I really enjoyed this conversation. I wanted to ask one question that stayed in my mind is when you entered that chess competition and you didn't know how to play chess, how did that work out? What happened with that experience? <laughs> Okay, I had to watch the, a video that, that says learn chess in 10 minutes. 
<laughs> just be, just before the tournament begins, and I lost in the first match. What did you learn from that experience? I learned that uh, doesn't matter if you know something or not, but what it matters if you have the enough encouragement to actually doing it because you learn a lot from the experience. I mean, at least next time I apply for a chess tournament, I know what to expect, right? Exactly. That's really, really incredible and very courageous too. So my first question from the rapid fire questions is complete this sentence. Home is where? Home is where you feel alive, whatever that means to you, whether it's being with your family, pursuing your passion, fighting for a case that you believe in. My sense for home revolves around two elements, being with my family and making a meaningful contribution with the life I've been blessed with, like helping others. When I fulfill both these aspects, I feel a sense of uh, belonging and comfort. Beautiful. What's one piece of advice that you would give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? I would say that, uh, hi, as a refugee, our country is going through a bad situation right now. If you want to feel that belonging that we should have, then let's do our best to rebuild it. And believe me, there is a lot we can do. Just you have to look around, no need to look too far. But on the other hand, we have to adapt in the new place and keep in mind that we belong to what makes us happy, what makes us feel alive, as I mentioned, and find what makes you alive and go for it. Great advice. What dish tastes like home to you? The fresh warm Syrian bread, because uh, when we was in Syria, we used to bring our bread fresh from the oven at uh, 6 a.m. So <laughs> fresh bread reminds me of my home and my childhood. I remember that too. What's a book or books that you love and have recommended to your friends the most? You recommend to us here at the podcast to check out and read. They're really popular books. Nothing so special. I would say Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's an extraordinary book, especially for teenagers. And also the book's name, The Art of Not Giving an F by Mark Manson, because it encourages you to embrace failure and emphasizes that it's entirely fine to fail since uh, success often arises from initial failures. People usually say that, uh, what if I fail? What if I lose a year of my life? Like, uh, come on, this year is going to pass anyway. It's okay to try, fail, try again. Those are really great books. And I agree with you, great books for young people. And I think your attitude of determination and not being afraid to fail really has been such an important ingredient to your success. So Yusuf, I'm so glad that we had the chance to speak today. I'm so proud of you. I can't wait to hear all about your journey to Exeter. We'll have you back on to talk about that. And I wish you all the best in your next chapter. We're going to miss you a lot at Karam House, but this is all part of the journey that you keep on moving forward. And hopefully you'll come back as a guest mentor in the future. Thank you, Lina, for your trust and everything Karam House provided to me. And I won't let you down, I promise. I know that you won't. You already are soaring very high and we're all very, very proud of you. Thank you for being part of Belongings and giving us your time today. I know people will be very inspired by this conversation. And I, again, wish you all the best. Thank you, Yusuf. You're most welcome. It's my pleasure. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergiatar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode researched by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleiman Faour. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.